Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to episode four of the Anti-Essentialism series. As I mentioned in previous episodes, we're currently in between season one and season two of the podcast. So I thought it was an opportune moment to replay the anti-essentialism series that we aired in the summer and fall of 2017. But we're going to do this in a linear and more coherent fashion. Those episodes appeared sort of smattered across season one. So I wanted to play them back to back, reordered, so that the exact argument that we're trying to make from guest to guest is more obvious, you might say. It's a more coherent totality of positions that emerges across all of these episodes. I call it anti-essentialism. You could call it anti-identity reductionism if you need another piece of snazzy jargon. But essentially what we're doing is we're trying to add some complexity to the way that the woke neoliberal centrists envision oppression in society. The socialist position always emphasizes the importance of class and the inequalities produced by capitalism. We argue that class is always already what people refer to as intersectional. In fact, the working class is easily the most intersectional body in all of the world, you might argue. So my guests have been breaking that down from week to week. Week one featured Vivek Chibber. He talked about class and why it matters. Episode two featured a discussion with Cedric Johnson. We talked about the black power moment and how it has some contradictory legacies for organizing in the present. Episode three featured a fire interview with Pascal Robert. We talked about the black misleadership class. That interview is excellent. Getting a lot of good feedback on that one once again. Now we're moving on to episode four. I'm going to replay an interview I did with Walter Ben Michaels. Walter is a real mensch of a guy. Uh, he is a, a luminary and a very important scholar in his field of American literature. Uh, always a controversial guy, as you'll see, but what he's known for on the, the sort of political left is his critique of identity politics in scare quotes. And the way that he defines that is this kind of identitarianism that promotes diversity, uh, diversity rather, over inequality. And that's the heart of his thesis, that the diversity industrial complex promotes this kind of woke neoliberal centrism that has a way of tamping down class politics and, uh, you know, addressing inequalities, which actually, in essence, you know, end up fate, end up, you know, having the, the broadest impacts on actually existing marginalized people, right? As I mentioned at the outset, class is always already intersectional. If you want to address the most marginalized in society, you better start talking about a real militant, socialist-minded class politics. Without further ado... I'll let Walter make the argument himself. Enjoy. Joining me today on the Dead Pundit Society is a man with a distinguished career as a literary and social critic. He's a rabble rouser and a truth seeker, but not by temperament, rather on account of his rigorous critical eye, which, which enables him to patiently reveal uh, that what most of us consider to be sacred cows are in fact historically contingent distinctions 
and discourses. So that makes him perfect for uh, for our show. We bring on a lot of rabble rousers. Uh, I've had a lot of great guests, but I'm honored to have this one. Uh, Walter Ben Michaels, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you. Thanks for joining the Dead Pundit Society. You are currently a professor of English at uh, the University of Illinois, Chicago, where you chair the department. Uh, you've had uh, appointments, a very long and illustrious career. You've been at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, so I have to ask you, uh, why in the hell are you taking a victory lap in Chicago? Isn't it uh, awfully cold up there? Yes. Yeah, so the first thing is, <laughs> I have a piece of really good news only for me, or okay. mainly for me, which is that I'm no longer head. I stopped being head of our English department or chair oh, uh, last winter after doing it for many, many years. You earned um, it. I should say also, um, UIC is basically the only, it's by far the best job I've ever had. And I actually didn't even mind so much being chair of the department because I'm much closer to believing in this university's mission wow. than I could possibly be to be believing in uh, Johns Hopkins' mission at this point in my life, or for that matter, uh, the Berkeley mission. In fact, Berkeley was probably the most alienating political experience of my life. Hmm. So I'm really, really glad not to be at Berkeley. So yeah, the climate's not great, um, but I love Chicago, and being at the kind of public university UIC is, has been really uh, extremely helpful to me intellectually. It's been a, a way to learn about a way of thinking about university life, which most of my career, which was spent in elite universities, uh, made impossible for me. So actually, it's not at all a victory lap. In fact, in my not a victory lap. I don't think I've ever won anything in this series of debates. But I, but if losers can hold their heads high, I'm holding my head high at UIC. Well, you're a winner to us, I assure you. you, are, yeah, good. you are, and, uh, and the other eight or nine people out there, like, you know, uh, my audience. we got to stick together. Well, there's, a, there's a few dozen of us out there anyway. <laughs> okay, uh, totally. And we're growing at this rate. There'll be 120 by uh, <laughs> the end of the decade. I assume the 10,000 listens that this is going to get, uh, at least, uh, you know, a couple dozen out there thinks you're a pretty good guy. So, uh, but yeah, that's a, that's great because I assumed actually that I, I I presumed that you would give that kind of response. I my my comments were strictly related to geography. Uh, no no comments on on the actual institutions themselves. But yeah, it is- so it's true that geography sucks, but it's also true, and this is a sort of different thing. It actually makes a difference that hmm. um, to me especially, it's made a difference that um, although the the sort of uh, picket line chant "Get up, get down, Chicago is a union town" <laughs> right, right. is not totally false, hmm. so that. Um, it's significant to me that, for example, an activity that I could not by law have engaged in at Johns Hopkins and that I could not have engaged in at Berkeley because the entire Berkeley faculty was so hostile to it, that is organizing, being part of an organizing effort for a faculty union, consumed for several years a large portion of my time here and was in many respects kind of inspiring. So there's also at every respect educational. So there's an important sense in which um, Chicago, even geographically, leaving the climate part of it out, plus there's some kind of hidden causal relation, has been kind of useful because the remnants of what it means to be an industrial city mean that the idea that service workers or or intellectual workers could also be organized is an idea that's alive and well at at, uh, UIC. Interesting. That's 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 very true. I hadn't considered the uh, the differences in in, um, you know union climates and and even legal even legal apparatus. Yeah. So for example, you know Chicago's uh, Illinois is card check. So to those of your listeners who do union stuff, card check means you don't you can decide not to have an election 
which is often a useful thing because management's very good at making elections uh, as, hard. As we saw at and Nissan. And you can actually uh, begin plan, yeah. right begin the process of getting a union organized by getting a majority of the faculty to sign cards declaring their intention to belong mm-hmm. to one. So our dr- original drive was a card check drive, and that's just a technicality. But in a world where, which is very well organized, to make organizing unions very, very difficult, and which uh, once Gorsuch gets to be the deciding vote, will be even better organized to make public unions difficult mm-hmm. to do. Card check is still one of the remaining useful tools. So tell us about your union. Just a quick little uh, 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 spiel about it. What's the name of it? Uh, what kind of uh, work do you all do? So the union is UIC, UF, United Faculty. For reasons that I'm not quite clear on, uh, the AFT and the AUP got together and decided that UIC was a plausible candidate for unionization. Mm-hmm. And this was to be almost 10 years ago. And they began meeting with a few of us. The few of us began growing. And there were a series of important issues. And the issues were the usual ones. I mean, uh, they were um, money issues and autonomy issues. And they were particularly intense at UIC because we are, like many other large underfunded public universities, a large employer of non-tenure track faculty, sometimes mm-hmm. called contingent, sometimes uh, lecturers, whatever. And that was a problem for us. And we made a decision early on that we would organize the tenure track and the non-tenure track together as part of a single unit, a single union. And it made a huge difference for all of us. So there have been very, very strong economic benefits. And I can give you an example of one of them right away. Before our union was even dreamed of, the uh, highest salary or the standard salary, there was no high or low, for a lecturer in the English department. And this was at a time when I was chairing the English department. And we had, as we do now, between 40 and 50 lecturers. The standard salary for teaching a 3-3 load was something like $26,800. Mm. When when the union began to organize, um, the administration sort of tried to do a little preemptive work um, by raising it to something like 30000 right. Um By the time the union finished organizing and by the time we got to our second contract, the minimum salary is now $42,000 a year. So it's gone from 286 to 42. It's now possible to be promoted and get more money. There is now a raise, a 10% raise to a whole other level of being a lecturer. So that in fact, the sort of economic picture of being a lecturer at UIC has been radically transformed. It's not anywhere near sufficiently transformed. It needs to be much better than it is. But without the union and without the tenure track faculty and the non-tenure track faculty fighting together, as part of a single group, those changes would never have taken place. So to me, it was a very vivid um, instance of how a certain kind of political activity, which involved almost no use of Twitter and which had a kind of <laughs> no hashtags, extremely, sure? extremely moderate, not to say pathetic, online presence, but which crucially involved visiting every fucking member of the, fa- of the faculty oh, yeah. at least once and often twice and trying to persuade people shame people, goad people, whatever it took to get them to sign on to the union actually worked and has made life substantially better for a small group, but a large proportion of our uh, faculty. 
Wow. So that's a model case. That's really uh, astounding. I, I knew that uh, there was some good organizing going on over there at UIC, but I didn't realize that you had paired the tenure track and the non-tenure track. Yeah. I mean, together. it's a long story. We the, the minute we did that, the courts fought it. I mean, the, the administration fought it in the courts. I'm sure. And they yeah. eventually won. But what they won was that we could be part of a single union, but we could not sign the same contracts. Ah, so yeah, what we right. did was we made a decision that we would have the same bargaining team for both the NTT contract and the tenure track contract. Mm -hmm. So we did. Actually, at that time, I was the sort of lead spokesperson for our bargaining team. So we had the same group of people, a group of tenure track and non-tenure track people who would meet with the administration to bargain over the tenure track contract. And that same group of people, tenure track and non-track, would meet with the administration to bargain over the non-tenure track contract. So in effect... We maintained the solidarity, even though when finally the negotiations were done, and after we'd had a two-day walkout, um, that the, we had to have two different votes. But in fact, except for the fact that we vote separately, um, in everything else, uh, we're completely united. And in fact, the leadership of our union is more or less 50-50 tenure track and non-tenure track. And in, I should put in a little plug here. I'm a, I'm a member of the AUP. I'm a member of Committee A of the AUP. I don't completely agree with everything the AUP does, mm -hmm. but the AUP's campaign for what they call the One Faculty Organizing uh, oh. Program, which is that TT and NTT fighting together as a single group, is something that I'm completely committed to. Um, and in our experience at UIC, it's worked out extremely well. Again, I mean, no one's pretending there aren't that things are even close to perfect. And no one's pretending there aren't many, many more battles to come. And, you know, the, the Gorsuch court will produce even more battles for us as public workers. But nonetheless, I don't think there's a prayer of winning those battles. And there would have been no prayer of having as much as the limited success we've had if we hadn't been organized as one group. That's great. That's a great case. I know uh, I was served on the bargaining team as well in my union. And, and so we always had to sort of... Uh, negotiate between the various units. I'm sure there are some, some uh, hostilities perhaps that may uh, uh, yeah, erupt for sure. and between there are the tenure and non-tenure. Right. But, but I would say for us, one of the difference, a lot of the differences were helped work out by the fact that some of our NTT leaders were really both ingenious and sort of inspired at helping both the NTT faculty and the tenure track faculty to see what their common interests were. Hmm. So I think the real credit, I mean, it doesn't succeed unless you can have people who can help make it succeed. At UIC, the real credit went to a bunch of people from the non-tenure track faculty who were able to um, really make everybody see the ways in which our interests in the end were the same. Um, so yeah, we know there are problems elsewhere, mm -hmm. and actually we know there are and will be problems at UIC. But um, if you split it up and have the two working against each other, you don't just have the same problems. You have absolutely, in my experience, zero chance of solving them. It's untenable, right? Those are those are good problems to have is the way I like to see things. Uh, yeah. In fact, that's yeah. one of the few good things about me and one of the few sort of upsides to unionization in the last you know decade has obviously been the commitment of contingent faculty to organizing. All right. That's really laudable. I, I mean, I... 
that's that's good. This is a great way to start off the show because uh, a lot of your work is is often kind of like really in the weeds of literary criticism and and politics and that sort of thing. So this sort of on the ground political perspective to ground our conversation uh, is really great. I didn't plan on it, but uh, this is this is good. So. So kicking kicking things into full gear here, uh, many will be aware that your name, I, we talked about this off air a bit, so I have your blessing, I suppose, in sharing this, but your well, name- My permission is not the same as my blessing. <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, I'll take the risk anyhow. You have achieved the dubious distinction of, of reaching a status where just your name alone is, is itself a position in a debate. And in and, and many debates, surely, but the one that I'm focusing on uh, mostly here on this program is is that between the silly distinction between race and class. And your work uh, on the trouble with diversity in particular is uh, cited often as a class-only or a class-reductionist approach to this artificial uh, distinction uh, between race and class. Uh, uh, what are your what are your sort of uh, just th- you know sort of gloss of a, on on thoughts about that? Because we're going to get into that those artificial distinctions uh, later on in the show. But how does that how, how does that make you feel? <laughs> so I mean, how does it make me feel? I'm a byword for class reductionism. Let's talk about Walter and Michael's feelings. I, I uh, way, I'd way way rather be a byword for class reductionism than be a byword for racism as the original sin of America. You know, so if you had sure, to choose sure. between those two, I'll choose my side. I think. I think the fact that the, um, you know, that uh, my work is um, controversial in this, I mean, it is true. It's not just that. I mean, years ago, I wrote an essay called Against Theory with um, a colleague then at Berkeley, Steve Knapp, and that in people who write about questions of textual interpretation, what does the text mean? Does it mean what the words and the language make it mean? Does it mean what the author means by it? Does it mean what the readers mean by it? Does it mean some combination of all those three? We took a very extreme position uh, that all texts mean only and always what the author means by them and have been defending some version of that position ever since. Mm -hmm. So if we were in a literary theory conversation, it would also be a byword for (laughs) a position that people, you know, regard, I would say the majority of people regard it with some horror. Uh, But, you know, part of the, uh, fun of intellectual life. I mean, maybe fun is the wrong way to put it in this context, but if you're a masochist, it is perhaps. part of the fun. Yeah. No, no, it's not at all masochism. It's it's, ma- it's masochism if you think actually you're putting out bad arguments and the people keep on coming back with better arguments. Okay, but like okay. when you read True. things like so, like David Rediger's recent screed to publicize <laughs> his new book, if those are the best arguments they can come with, you feel like no, no, I'm totally right about this. Yeah, and in yeah, fact, yeah. if I weren't already committed to it, I were reading this, I think. Well, geez, that guy, Ben Michaels, might have a few problems, but he's for sure better than people like David Rediger. So I feel the same with the theory thing. You know, I, I think there may be obviously things that are wrong, but I don't, you know, it's actually pleasurable to be able to take a position which seems to you right and to defend it and to try to sort of make clear what the implications are. And often because you discover implications that you didn't know. I mean, I... You know, when I first began working on uh, race stuff, it was not as an attempt to think about how race functions with class. It was an mm-hmm. attempt to think about how race mattered in American literature of the 1920s. And it just came out of the sense, I mean, I was just teaching one summer to make some extra money at Berkeley. I was teaching summer school. 
and I was teaching a course that I'd actually never taught before. It was a survey of the 20th century American novel. Um, and if you're teaching a survey of the sort of American novel and you're doing the 20s, you're extremely likely to teach sort of back to back to back um, Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby mm-hmm. and Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises mm-hmm. and Faulkner's um, The Sound and the Fury. And teach them back to back to back. I just thought these are the same damn books. They right. actually are right. in a certain way very different, but they have exactly the same structure. Mm-hmm. And that structure is that there's a kind of, to use sort of old anthropological terms, massive overvalorization of blood relations in all of these. And there's a sense, and there's a sense, and that which leads to a kind of either literal or imagined um, valorization of incest. That is, mm-hmm. you know, Faulkner is the most obvious one. Um, right. Quentin claims he slept with Caddy. And that, but in all those texts, there's a version of that. And in all those texts, the alternative is someone who's in some sense marked as a Jew, as someone who doesn't belong to the family. And it's Jewishness that functions. The, so mm-hmm. I'm thinking, why? Why the fuck is that? I mean, this is many, many years ago. I'm not a scholar of racism in the U.S. at that point. And I just started reading around. I asked a colleague if the guy in, um, in uh, The Great Gatsby, uh, this man Goddard, Fitzgerald calls him, was based on someone real. And he told me, yeah, he thought so. It was someone called Lothrop Stoddard. So I read and started reading the collected works of Lothrop Stoddard. And that was very, very informative. So then you start reading all these other things, massive things that were published by mainstream presses. Really, Stoddard published from the same press that Sheldon Hemingway did, Scribner's, and see the degree to which a certain kind of racism, and then, as I argue, a certain kind of racial pluralism became increasingly central to American culture. A lot of it around the uh, Johnson Act, the Anti-Immigration Act of 1924, which was called the Keep Out the Jews Act. Um, I mean, that's what the people who supported it called. So right, that was the right. point of it was to keep out the Jews. It kept out a whole lot of other people as well, but the Jews were the main ones they were going for at the time. So it was in the course of doing that that I began to become interested in what people actually thought a race was. Um, and so I began getting interested in the question of the ontology of racial identity. Um, right. And so when you start doing that, you start reading, first of all, all the stuff that's wrong with the idea that there's anything biological to race. That is the critique of sort of um, race science, which reached its height in the sort of late teens, early 20s. But actually, people began to be critical of it fairly early on in the 20s. And then you realize that race survived as culture. People instead stopped talking about what it meant to belong to a race and stopped talking and started talking about what it meant to belong to a culture, but actually used exactly the same terms. So there's a way. In, and then I realized just looking around me, this is like, you know, in the... Uh, by this time, we're in the sort of early 1990s, that cultural identities become a complete byword and that people continue to be committed to cultural identity and actually in a way that I thought was completely incoherent. It was kind of a disguised form of racial identity and could not do any of the work they wanted it to do. So Our America, which is the book I wrote about this, sort of came out of that, but it really came out of just this attempt to sort of explain why these three books written basically in 1925, 1926, and 1929, were so much the same book. And what you needed to understand to understand that. And then it turned out to have a kind of contemporary valence that I hadn't been aware of. And the contemporary valence was, you know, first of all, that everybody in the 1990s, indeed the late 80s, in the academy and increasingly in the world, 
was increasingly committed to some form of identitarian logic, and that where they weren't doing old, bad biological racism, they were doing new, in some respects even worse, because completely incoherent, um, anti-biological culturalism. They were doing anti-essentialist racism. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know, your idea of fun must be, you know, uh, wrestling rattlesnakes and gargling. You know, uh, like Adolf. Bar- barbed wire. Like Adolf, <laughs> I have a very intense fear of snakes. Is that right? You and you and Adolf Reed. Uh, we do. Like if, you, if, you could, if you were privy to our email correspondence, you would see numerous horrific pictures. <laughs> uh, uh, kind of implausible high number of which are from the co- subcontinent or whatever the fuck it is. I guess it's a real continent of Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if any of your if any of your listeners are in Australia, I know people say, "Oh my God, it's just I do, a yeah. stereotype of Australia." It's not really like that. Doesn't matter to me, man. Me, <laughs> You're Australia never going down like, there. Absolutely not. Sorry to my Australians uh, down there in uh, down under. Uh, God, I always do that. I always pull out the worst Australian accent, and they yeah. just rail me up for it. I mean, they they're they're so, good people, good so friends. I want to say you, you totally deserve it. <laughs> All right. So moving on from the nonsense, let's move to something more immediately applicable in in terms of having a direct political import. Uh, Your race into culture article. It's uh, subheading is the critical genealogy of cultural identity and that you sort of reveal that our contemporary embrace of culture as a liberatory discourse uh, may actually have reactionary roots. It's got an ugly underside that we should be aware of. So tell us a little bit about that argument. So the basic idea, and it's not you know uniquely mine. I mean, actually, roughly the same time, uh, Anthony Appio was producing a, a very similar version of it, mm-hmm. and did a little bit before, um, although I didn't read it a little bit afterwards, unfortunately, in relation to history. But the kind of core idea of it is that you know what is meant. I actually think the whole idea of culture has been a kind of catastrophic thing, um, and the idea of it was what is meant by describing people as having a culture. Well. There's one completely innocuous and and useful meaning. People's culture is what they actually do and believe. Huh. So the books you read are part of your culture. The food you eat is part of your culture. Your body language is part of your culture. All these things are part of your culture. So that kind of culture is useful descriptively. But it's immediately obvious that that's not the kind of culture that people are talking about the minute they get into the idea of cultural identity. Because the minute you get into the idea of cultural identity, you're talking about something which is not simply what you actually happen to do. Mm. If you actually happen to do things, for example, if we're going to think about contemporary racialized cultures, what it would mean to belong to Jewish culture and what it would mean to belong to black culture would be a function of like, if you did like Jewish things, whatever they're supposed to be, (laughs) that would make you a Jew. And if you did like black things, that would make you black. But it's completely obvious. If I went to synagogue, I wouldn't just magically become a Jew, right? Well, the thing about it is, if you think of Judaism as religion, going to synagogue would not be enough. It'd be part of it. But but I'm thinking of Jewish and ethnic terms. Sure. Uh, okay. I, okay. The way Hitler thought of it, which has nothing to do with being a religion. It had to do with a race. Were we given up race? It's cultural instead. So everybody would think of me as a Jew. I, uh, but I, I have no religion at all. Uh, my family were socialists going way back. They hated Judaism, and I've set foot in a synagogue maybe three times in my life, always for the bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs of relations or friends. For the parties, yeah. So I still get to be a Jew. So <laughs> why? So you can say, well, it's like biological, but we're not doing that. The whole point of that is that's not supposed to be the way you do race. So we do it in terms of culture. So what is it that makes you Jewish culturally? So the point's going to be is that it can be descriptive, 
But then anybody who waved his hands around the way I did and was from New York and talked <laughs> fast and liked locks and bagels would be Jewish. Whereas we think, no, 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 a black guy who does those things is actually a black guy who also likes some Jewish things. Do you want to say, well, what makes the guy black then if he does all these Jewish things? Well, what makes him black is he's a black guy. You know, it's not his culture that makes him black. It's his race that makes him black. So the problem is, is that the minute you imagine that you can separate your true culture, like why doesn't a black guy do black things, your true culture from what you actually happen to do, you've got a criterion of authenticity, which goes beyond your everyday practices. So where does that criterion of authenticity come from? Why should, why should black people, what, what would it mean to belong to a black culture beyond actually being a black person? You want to say, okay, it can't mean just being a black person because the whole point of the cultural argument is that there's no such thing as the black race. What there is instead uh, yeah. is black culture. So the point about it is, is that either it's going to be, if it's culture, then there's no such, anything like what we think of as race. And you don't have to have any particular skin color or any particular set of genes or any particular history to be a black person. But we know we don't treat it that way. No one treats it that way. So in fact, when everybody talks about black culture, what they actually mean is the black race. When people talk about Jewish culture, what they actually mean is something like Jewish ethnicity. And ethnicity is just like race for white guys. So there's an important <laughs> sense in which, you know, you want to say, I want to say that culture is just a way of, people for to talk about race without doing biology, but where biology is doing the same work it always did. And the minute you actually put it that way, you realize that's in a way always been true of modern racism. People back in the progressive period, the high watermark, you know, of American complete Negrophobia, Birth of the Nation, Thomas Dixon, Woodrow Wilson, all those guys, they never thought race was just a matter of your genetics. Look, they didn't know for most of that period what genetics were. <laughs> right, right. They thought it was a matter of your soul. So we use culture the same way they use soul. It's that mysterious thing, which means that you belong to this race. Or and, blood, as you, as you mentioned. Or earlier, blood. Yeah, blood, blood was yeah, the standard version of this. And blood was always for them like whatever. The blood was, a, blood was like soul. The blood and the soul sort of went together. So the argument was that, in fact, the sort of advantages of culture, which was precisely a term and a concept that people turned to because of their sense of the exhaustion and the, not just the exhaustion, it's the wrong word, but the complete mistakenness of the biological concept of race actually was totally parasitic on the biological concept of race. That is, as long as it meant something other than what you actually happen to do, believe, where you stand, what you eat, as long as it meant something other than that, so that it made sense to say, yes, um, he's black, but he doesn't do all the culturally appropriate things. Or to say, I'm getting back in touch with my culture. Or to say, I'm trying to like rediscover my identity. Your identity is whatever you do. <laughs> you can never rediscover it. And if, if it is the sort of thing you can rediscover, right? if it is the sort of thing that you can connect yourself up with because you're disconnected from it, then your identity must consist in something other than the things you actually do and believe and you're just right back with race. You ought to act like what your race is. So tell me a little bit about your take on this really simplistic way that we, we, we talk our way outside of this dilemma, 
with insisting that, yeah, well, Walter, Adam, come on. You know, they always take this tone, right? You, you know, you know the tone, right? Yeah, but come on. Sure. Okay, sure. That might be true, but come on, you know, <laughs> what, but you know, race is really, it's a culture. It's, it's a social construct. Yeah. So, so I actually written a piece, <laughs> which I recommend to all your readers called why race is not a social construction. I wrote it back in the days when people thought it was actually published in a, in a journal, um, which was doing its its white issue. And the white issue was meant to be people of color talking about white people. But they asked me to contribute something because they knew I didn't consider anybody to be white and therefore <laughs> including me. So therefore it was okay to do it. So yeah, the argument was, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a version of this argument. It was about passing. Um, and its central wow. examples are passing examples. I mean, yeah, what does it mean to pass? If you could, So in other words, if you were committed to culture, right, um, you would say someone who can pass Someone, let's say a black person passing is white, a person who looks white, a person who acts white, a person who to every appearance can make himself or herself appear to be white. Why is that person passing? Why isn't that person white? If race really is a social construction, why isn't that person white? Do you want to say, well, the person's not white because he's descended from a black person? Well, that's not a social construction. That's just a claim about, you know, actually, that's just a claim about his biology, claim bad genetics. So the minute you think of someone as passing, i.e. pretending to be someone whom they really aren't, you've committed yourself to what we used to back in the day call a completely essentialist account of identity. But if you don't mm-hmm. commit yourself to that essentialist account of identity, right, then you don't think there's any such thing as passing. Someone who's like acting white is white. Someone who's acting black is black. Uh, so, yeah. And so what people always say about that is, yeah. Well, they actually always say, yeah, you're an asshole. <laughs> but what they, what they don't, that's what they mean. <laughs> but what they're actually saying is something like, well, okay, yeah, but, you know, the social construction part is still real important because, after all, people in the U.S. and elsewhere, even if there's no such thing as race, even if there's no such thing as culture, it, it means something to be black in the U.S. You are made into an object of discrimination if you are black in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The fact that race doesn't exist doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. Racism totally does exist. But what you want to say is that if you are interested in this battle, what you'd be interested, right, is in trying to show people that no, they're racism. Before you get to the moral imperatives, I realize that, especially in our world right this moment, no one cares about anything but the moral imperatives. Everybody (laughs) wants to make politics everything. As moral as humanly possible right up front. But before you got to the moral issue, you might want to say, look, racism is not just wrong, although it for sure is wrong. It's also totally fucking incoherent because there are no such things as races. Mm -hmm. So I was very struck by the fact that my generation of academics and then the ones coming up just after us, when they got to racism and social construction, the last thing in the world they wanted to do was explain to anyone how there was no such thing as race. Um, Omi and Winnott wrote very influential books, still influential, right? In which they said, yeah, race is social construction, but we shouldn't conclude from that that there is no such thing as race because it is socially constructed. But you want to say it's socially constructed on the basis of a mistake. When I identify someone as Jewish or identify someone as black or identify someone, well, just stick with those. When I do identification, what I mean by that is something about their genetics, And if it's not true that genetics make you belong to a race, which it is not true that genetics make you belong to a race, then my identification is mistaken. 
And all we mean by social construction is treating people's mistakes as if they were real, right? Treating people's mistakes as if they should be honored, and therefore people should get to, or be required to, belong to the races that people mistakenly think that they belong to, or that people mistakenly think that they themselves belong to. So the initial argument about race that came out of our America was totally this ontological argument that there were no such things as races, and that the idea that race was a social construction was actually not uh, a good way of defending something like race, and that what you, not a good way because it was an incoherent way, and that what you should do instead was give up the idea of race. Race was a mistake. So like, Interesting. there are no such things as black people. There are no such things as white people. There are no yeah. such... Yeah, so to pull some of that stuff out there, the article that you mentioned, like I said, I hadn't read that, but uh, I thought I'd seen most of your stuff by now, if, if not read it in, in full. But that's called Autobiog- Autobiography of an Ex-White Man. That yes. was written and published in 1997. Nice provocative title. as a, So you're putting your your race uh, uh, under erasure as a, as a former yes. Deridian. Uh, yeah, former I was going to say, that's a little too. Yeah, that's a pun <laughs> that I don't make, but I do see the point. Yeah. So that yeah, that is the article. I, it's probably available on the internet someplace. Yeah, it's it's up. Uh, I may have to uh, break some uh, p- uh, copyright laws, but I'll try to put that up for my patrons. Yeah, totally. So Against Race by Paul Gilroy that came out around that same time in the mid to late 90s uh, made a similar kind of argument that uh, that race sort of has a social existence, but it has no logic and it should be sort of placed under erasure and our aim should be to overcome these uh, 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 falsely constructed, uh, socially constructed notions of race ultimately in the end. Yeah, so I think Gilroy, yeah, Gilroy and I in general would probably... I mean, there are some points of disagreement, and I actually haven't looked at that book now in many years. But um, yeah, we were both skeptical about race and about the ongoing presence. But I mean, but this does lead really to the next step of this argument, right? Because, you know, when you realize that no one wanted to give up race, racists didn't want to give up race, anti-racists didn't want to give up race, that you couldn't yep. find like anybody who wanted to give yep. up race. Yep. It kind of led to a question, which is why? Why are people so invested in maintaining the centrality of race. This is good. This is great. So I'm in the midst of my anti-essentialism summer series 2017. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that to you before, and I'm taking these questions up because, you know, the only people committed to a sort of uh, essentialized race ontology more than the far right right now is the far left. <laughs> that is uh, true. And, and, you know, I mean, so the people... The difference is the far right knows they are. Where the far left thinks they're not. Yeah, they're quite. The far right is quite conscientiously uh, uh, committed to the fundamental differences between the races, uh, whereas those on the left sort of disavow that part, but they want to keep the good stuff in their minds. And so uh, I talked quite at length with Adolf Reed and, and Cedric Johnson and Pascal Robert and some other folks I've had on the show about like, okay, so if these discourses are false, why do people cling on to them? Okay, clearly there are social and material. Um, uh, benefits, if you will. People are tied to these things institutionally and materially. They have affinities that that uh, to these discourses because they they sort of benefit from them. I mean, to 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 do do a quick detour before we get into the um, trouble with diversity argument. David Rediger himself is a person who has committed his entire life. Uh, to this this uh, whiteness studies stuff. And so you can sort of imagine that someone who has staked an entire career on a discourse 
would be quite wedded to it. Actually, actually, so I actually gave the article we were just talking about, uh, Why Race is Not a Social Construction. Mm -hmm. The the one of the few talk I gave it twice as a talk that I could remember. One was at a conference at the Columbia Law School that was called Passing, and at that conference, um, someone called them. They'd seen their their um, their poster, and they said, "This guy Michaels is giving a talk that you say is called Why Race is Not a Social Construction. That must be a typo. What the talk really must be is Why Race is a Social Construction." So you can see the beginning of the ideas that was completely unimaginable that you would say this. So the second thing was I actually gave it at the first, but I'm afraid not the last, the first ever whiteness studies conference, which took place at Berkeley. Uh, and I don't remember the exact date. Um, it was actually really educational in several ways. There's a huge audience and all these speakers. Um, and then they had made it so that the audience, which consisted of many people who were not like academics. In fact, it was the first time I ever learned that there was like a job that was called anti-racist organizing. I was extremely naive about it, but it was like it seemed like a, a large portion of the population of Berkeley was either employed or self-employed as anti-racist organizers because they were at the podium and they would identify themselves as anti-racist organizers and then go on from there. So gave that as a talk there and actually it was hissed, you know, by um, the sort of assembled crowd. And yeah. you could see the point, because the point at that point was just that the investment in anti-racism, and I don't, I know, I mean, Adolf and Cedric especially, um, can be very, very articulate and convincing about the degree in which people are getting paid for anti-racism. But, you know, I actually think that my own sort of methodological philistinism is forget about people's immediate economic interests and just go what they think is true. And I do think that there's an important way in which even if those guys weren't getting paid, they're still committed to this position. But you could see that one of the things the position did right away, that is the centrality of race did, and this is where class comes in, is that it gave you a vision of a society in which the fundamental divisions were racial divisions. And that if you had that vision, however you come up with it, once you had that vision, you had a sense of what justice was. And that sense of what justice was was going to be very different from the sense of what justice was that you would get if you began by thinking of the society as fundamentally organized by class. And to me, right. that is like the story of the last half century of American mm -hmm. political life, which is the extraordinary attractiveness to both the left and the right of a vision of a society which is fundamentally organized by racial difference and therefore by racism. So that anti-racism is is really profoundly a way of seeing. I mean, it's really just kind of it's 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 a it's a way of of seeing the world and it's a way of seeing the possibilities that exist in it. Completely, uh, it, completely. It's, 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 a, it's a form of myopic blindness. Well, yeah, way, you know, uh, because I wouldn't say myopic blindness. I would just say ideology. Sure, you know? sure. but yeah, yeah, ideologists believe what they believe. Otherwise, it would never work. <laughs> would never work yeah, for four yeah. seconds if they didn't believe it and have arguments for it. But it's a way of saying, yeah, which is why the whole race class thing is, is comes up. The race class thing comes up because they're not a false – and you said before it's kind of a false distinction. I don't think it is a false distinction. I mean obviously everybody belongs to a race if you think there are such things as races. So mm -hmm. everybody's constructed as belonging to a race. Everybody belongs to a class. Um, everybody belongs to a sex or a gender or whatever you want to keep on multiplying these differences in our societies. I'm kindly good at multiplying certain versions of those differences oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. the versions we're good at multiplying are the ones where 
the justice solution is ending discrimination. So all the sexual ones, all the racial ones, all the ethnic ones, all those, all the disabilities ones, think about sort of new developments in disability studies, new over the last 20 years, are all geared toward this kind of pluralism, the idea that, look, we know that these groups are fundamentally equal, therefore it's a mistake to treat any one of them or any member of any one of them as if they were unequal, and therefore we should be committed to the most thoroughgoing anti-discrimination we can be committed to. So I want to say, I too am committed to anti-discrimination. I think it's completely right. We should be committed to all forms of anti-discrimination, and there is no category of discrimination so small that I won't sign on to being against it, you know, whatever group it is. But you also want to say that that commitment to anti-discrimination, which fundamentally follows from the model here is race, but it would also be sex, a racialized vision of the world, a vision of the fundamental inequities as inequities produced by racism or sexism. That model of discrimination has nothing in itself logically or as it's turned out practically to do with actually ending class exploitation. So the original, and that this is why um, the class reductionist thing comes up, right? Because what I want to say is not that uh, racism is a distraction. I don't think racism is a distraction. We should totally be against racism at all times. But that the fight to end racism has nothing whatsoever to do with the fight to end exploitation. Um, and there's a fundamental difference between, let's not think of it as race and class, let's just think of it in more conceptual terms, between what it means to oppose discrimination and what it means to oppose exploitation. It is possible, indeed, easy to imagine a world in which there is no discrimination. It's not at all easy to achieve that world, and we may never achieve it, but that's the world we're striving for. But it's also easy to see that a world in which there were no discrimination would not only not be a world in which there was no exploitation, it wouldn't be a world in which people even have to worry about exploitation. That's what it means. When, so this is what Rediger complains bitterly about my saying, but it's what right, I've been right. saying for years, what Adolf says, what we all say, is that the anti-discrimination argument is completely happy with a world in which 13.2% of the top 1% are black and in which, like, you know, whatever correct proportion of women there are, whatever correct proportion of uh, gay men there are, whatever the correct proportion of lesbians is. When I say that, I don't mean that the people who are against discrimination are themselves necessarily happy with that world. I mean that anti-discrimination entails only that everybody have an equal opportunity to become an exploiter. But an equal opportunity to become an exploiter has nothing whatsoever to do with socialism. So let's let me let me push you there because what Rediger and his uh, in his side of the argument would would argue is that well sure I take your point to an extent but isn't it the case that capitalism requires the uh, creation of distinctions? Uh, in order to hyper-exploit certain uh, you know, populations. Yeah, so one of the points about that has been, so if you go back to the, yep. the Reed-Woods debate that uh, people have been referring to again recently, is that one of the things about that has been to say, well, look, the capitalism requires is a kind of ahistorical essentialization, in my view. So, yes, has capitalism not required, did not 19th century American capitalism and a lot of a capitalism through the 20th century require racism? 
Does not capitalism right now still in some ways require racism? Totally, absolutely does. What's interesting about our period, which has now been going on for a long time, right, let's say the last half century, call it the neoliberal period, call it whatever you want, has been that it turns out capitalism can also make incredibly effective use of anti-racism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is, so that you want to say, yeah, capitalism can do a lot of different things. The goal of capitalism is to make exploitation possible without talking about individual motives, right? That's the kind of core of it. Class exploitation is the core of it. So, yes, racism can be an effective tool in making class exploitation possible. As it turns out, anti-racism can also be, as we see every day in every diversity moment and every big um, corporation or every day in our politics when people are saying that Bernie is getting trashed because he's insufficiently alert. You know, Hillary saying, but we'll cap, we'll, you know, economic equality and racism, and racism, no. Well, busting the big banks and sexism, no. All those things that actually anti-racism and anti-sexism can be completely deployed on behalf of the defense of capitalism. Actually, not just the defense of, but a kind of ideological legitimation of. Because the argument's going to be the core notion of justice in a neoliberal society is equality of opportunity. So equality of opportunity is the fundamental logic of anti-discrimination. That's the whole point of anti-discrimination is equality of opportunity. It's not that everybody should have a good job. It's that people who don't have good jobs should be people who don't deserve them, whatever the criterion of deserving is, and that people who do have good jobs should be people who do deserve them. So that's the core of equality of opportunity. That's the core of what it means. I mean, take a kind of standard example that Ta-Nehisi Coates usefully brought back into play. Um, discrimination in mortgage markets. If you're going for an anti-discrimination model, a race-based model. What the problem is, is that for, you know, ever really in American life, either the government or the banks or some unholy combination of the two have discriminated against black people in housing mortgages. And that's true. You know, it's like totally, totally true. So what would it take to solve that? What it takes to solve that is that people a system in which people get the mortgages they economically qualify for, and it doesn't matter whether they're black or white. So that actually is an effective form of anti-discrimination. But that actually also is a complete legitimation of the fundamental logic of a capitalist economy, which is that people should get the mortgages they're economically qualified for. The difference between being against discrimination, the race argument, right, in the mortgage, in respect to mortgages, is that the socialist argument is going to be not that we should begin by ending discrimination in the, in the mortgage market, although as long as we have one, we should certainly not discriminate. That's why we're all against discrimination. It's going to be that the fundamental thing we're going for should be decommodifying housing, which is no, then the question of, of discrimination in mortgages becomes irrelevant. Why? Because no mortgages. It's a public good. Everybody should get housing. Exact same argument for health care. Everybody should get health care. Not, so we don't worry about discrimination in healthcare, not because we can magically overcome it, not because there's no more racism. I don't for a second think there's no more racism. I don't for a second think that all the moral exhortations to stop being racist are going to work. And if anybody ever thought they were going to work, I cannot imagine that the last six months have at least not begun to sort of open their eyes to the use, lack of in, the uselessness of that view. What you want to say the goal should be end the market in, in housing and right, right. the market in healthcare, and the market in education. So there's a fundamental difference. If you're going for discrimination, what you want is equality of access to those markets. You're going to end discrimination. 
if you're going for socialism, what you want is an end to the markets. And in that sense, I think there's a very fundamental difference. And once you put it that way, if one were to accept that sort of logic or that way of seeing the world, then it's easy to see why supposedly left arguments or supposedly left campaigns against discrimination are not a problem for capitalism. They're a way instead of imagining a kind of morally perfected capitalism in which exploitation's only a problem if you're being exploited because you're black or you're a woman or you're Latino or you belong to some uh, identity group which is faces, has faced and continues to face discrimination. But if you don't belong to that group, then you deserve it. Tough shit, right? <laughs> yeah, then it's your problem. Now, you know, someone will say, everybody always says, but you know, no, but the people who are against discrimination are also against exploitation. So, yeah. Are they? I mean, that's, well, that's, that's really an open-ended question. Yeah, I think. so I mean, that's kind of an empirical question, but you want, the, but the first argument is to say they may well be, but it's not a function of their being against racism. You can completely yeah. coherently be against racism without being against exploitation. And that's why our society loves people who are either for, it loves the fact that the argument is about racism. Who is the most racist? And indeed, you know, the Fields, um, uh, Barbara and Karen Fields make this argument extremely well in racecraft. What the real success of this has been ideologically is that it's basically reduced our vocabulary of injustice. So the main thing people talk about is who is and who's not a victim of discrimination. Right. And, and, you know, the pure point of that for me is the extraordinary number of white people who feel that the biggest prejudice problem facing America today is discrimination against white people. Those people are fucking deluded, right? That is not <laughs> even close. That's not in the top 100 of problems facing America. Asian Americans not getting into Harvard is a more important problem than that is. And that also isn't in the top 100 of problems facing America today. But it's useful, you know, data point. Why? Because it suggests what I think is true, that people have no way, you know, to conceptualize their own immiseration other than some form of discrimination. So the ideological triumph there is that the idea they're actually being exploited like by big business, by like rich white people, is not the first, second, or third thing that occurs to them. What they think is that they're being victimized by prejudices that now favor black people, which is totally wrong, but which is the world we live in, when the world we live in has been one that's constructed so that prejudice, racism, structural uh, racism, um, discrimination seem to us the fundamental problem. As I think Adolf said uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's it's this discourse is kind of like a ready-made Ku Klux Klan recruiting uh, pamphlet or slogan. It right? does I mean, seem to have worked out that way. <laughs> it does seem to have worked out that way. But the thing about it is, the main thing about the discourse is not that it that's wrong with it. It's not that it recruits like the Klan, although that is a truly unfortunate byproduct, right? It's that it's just fucked up. It's wrong. I mean, look, you know, uh, the last time I saw numbers about this, something like. Um, 32% of all white people in the U.S. have a net worth of zero. Now, the point is not, oh, my God, those poor white people, right? Because they're like no worse off than all the black people and Latino people and everybody else who has a net worth of zero. The point about it is they're, they're, they don't have a net worth of zero because they have now been brought to think that they have a net worth of zero because they're the victims of discrimination. 
That's totally uh, fucking false. Right, right, right. But, that black president, but, that black yeah, president. Yeah, right. They think know, Obama did, did it to them. Yeah, Whereas, in fact, right. the people who own all the money that they don't have are white people. You know, the top 20% of white people control something like 63% of the wealth in the country. Um, so there's a way in which you have a kind of, they are the victims not of racism, but of exploitation. You know that neoliberal ideology is powerful when white people who are the victims of exploitation have come to understand themselves as the victims of discrimination. So you're, you're really talking around a lot of the things that you raise in your uh, latest, The Beauty of a Social Problem, because the way in which uh, you sort of argue social problems are framed and argued has uh, a crucial, <laughs> as you've laid out far better than I could in the next couple of sentences, it has a crucial way of uh, enabling or disabling folks from seeing certain things in society. So what are some of the better social problems? You've already pointed to decommodification of certain markets. I mean, that seems to be the kind of only socialist horizon that seems worthy of talking about right now. Uh, but but how, how going forward, how would you frame uh, social problems uh, in, in a more principled, maybe socialist direction? Well, um, I'm not sure I answered that question. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, decommodification is like my best thing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's everybody's best thing. So I, yeah, you know, I mean, my, uh, I mean, I suppose this could be the point of the conversation where I say, dude, I'm just an English teacher. You know, how do I know what we're supposed to do? Outside of socialism, uh, how would you achieve socialism? Is essentially yeah, so what I just asked I, you there. I'm not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that actually is a very good question. But there I actually do feel completely comfortable saying I have no fucking clue. In other words, I am not, you know, to me, what was useful to me in my own experience, um, and this goes back to the union stuff, was being put in a position where I could see my own things that I cared about in my life and that I valued in my life that were jeopardized and that other people had already had lost and that many others didn't have and where you could actually put together a strategy for making them possible, for making everybody have them, everybody in this kind of limited group of a faculty union, right, which is like a completely tiny and insignificant group, but where you could sort of see, you know, this is what collective political action would look like. And it would look like this because you could unite, unite people around goals which were both material, they involved a certain level of redistribution, and just. They involved taking people's work seriously, no matter what that work was. So to me, I've always thought, you know, that um, any future left movement in the U.S. will have to have unions as a crucial uh, uh, sort of element in it. One of the things that attracted me to Adolf's work when I belatedly, you know, 15 years ago, started reading it, was that Adolf understood a vision of redistribution that came out of the union movement and came out of the power of workers. And I think that's really right. My own experience sort of bore that out. Um, so, you know, my sense is that if we start organizing around communities, like another word that global culture should be banished from the face of the earth, yes. you're organized around communities, yes. you're not organizing Jesus. around anything. You're organizing around like you know, different identitarian groups. And, and, and the truth of it is, is that there's no limit, you know, to the ingenuity of American society in constructing new forms of identity, which we can organize around. So you want to say, no, the point's not to organize around, the point is to make them completely irrelevant. Um, right. And you don't, as it turns out, make them irrelevant by organizing around them. You know, to me, 
know, but again, I claim no expertise in this. I, you know, I'm good at doing art criticism, or at least that's what I'm trying to do. I do literary criticism, literary theory, and a certain level of social critique. I am not close to being a skilled or knowledgeable organizer. Probably 90% of the people you talk to on these podcasts are better at that than I am. But my own experience suggests that organizing people around their work or organizing people around their lack of work mm-hmm. right, is fundamental. So there's a you know a central uh, claim there that that what unites folks uh, across all of the identities that are you know that are that are uh, projected on them uh, throughout history is their their need to work. Well, it's their need. Yeah, it's their need to make a living. Um, now you can imagine a world in which people make livings without working, um, but and in fact that is a highly desirable world. But and which work would be as in fact work itself would be decommodified. You know, mm-hmm. so that's like a totally good thing. But, you know, again, my sort of sense of it is, is that everybody does have a relation to the material conditions of their survival. And organizing them around that um, is, I think, something that people have in common right from the start. So when you're an organizer, what you have, you know, what you have in common matters. When I'm making arguments, you know, when we were organizing our union, I did not go around lecturing my colleagues about how bad diversity was. Because <laughs> you know, you don't I say. wanted to have a union. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. And I thought, okay, they'll they'll give me a pass for writing this stuff, and I'll give them a pass for holding what seemed to me completely retrograde views on identity. And let's just get on with the project in hand. So I think you can do a lot of work doing that. Um, but I think that the reason it works in a kind of union context is because the things you're organizing around already point in the direction of socialism or at least a redistribution of wealth. I mean, not all unions do in ours. It's not any kind of radical union. I wish it were more radical, but they do definitely point around things like it's like workers' rights. I mean, think of the debate uh, when we're doing this is, is you know, what, August 10th or whatever it is. The debate over the last few days about the schmuck at Google who um, wrote that ridiculous screed. So, like, the thing about it is, is that, though, you want to say, what's the true problem there from a left perspective? You, I mean, you can be running Google as the people running Google are and say, we don't want this guy around. They are, they want to, they, they want to get over their sexism. They want to get credit for getting over their sexism. They understand that making all the money they make does not depend on them being sexist. And then you can have the right wing version, which is Google suppressing free speech. They're these like left wing totalitarians. But the actual issue in that, right, is that nobody should be that easily fired. We are almost a completely higher-at-will society. So a higher-at-will society is someone where, for the vast majority of people, you could lose your job tomorrow for any reason at any time. That is the left issue here, not what the guy said or what the guy didn't say. We can also condemn what the guy said. What he said was completely moronic and stupid. But, in fact, what we ought to be fighting for is an employment policy at Google in which you could say a whole bunch of moronic and stupid things and you still wouldn't get fired for it. Um, you can do that in the academic world because we have tenure. Now, tenure is under assault and you can do it less and less. But people's response is always, well, yeah, but, you know, in the real world, you don't have tenure. Yeah, but what you should say is that in the real world, people should have something approximating tenure. In the real world, people should have protections for their jobs. They should not be at the mercy of what their bosses they can do. People talk about, you know, the New York Times which is the purest of neoliberal institutions, right, praises a Macron in France for trying to overcome 
all these outdated, outmoded, and counterproductive work rules in France. Those work rules are like fucking utopia for us. Those work rules make it hard to fire somebody. It should be hard to fire somebody. Yeah, you talk about the the beauty of a social problem in uh, Britain. They call this dilemma the the zero hour contract problem. Right now, that's that now that if that's not an excellent way of highlighting the importance of framing a social problem, I don't know what is. Right, no, that because is because in, in the United States, I mean, a zero hour contract. What the fuck does that mean? We don't have hours in our contracts at all, and the the boss can kind of send us home whenever they feel like it, or tell us, you know. Well, you got to come in today, you know, or whatever. You got to work overtime tomorrow. I mean, so a zero hour contract doesn't even make any sense uh, for us. However, for them, uh, it's a significant decline in what we're sort of on the job protections. Yeah, no, um, completely. And, it, uh, and the whole idea that, you know, here's a kind of striking thing that we live in a world where reform and more friendly to markets, <laughs> you know, are basically become synonyms. Um, so, yeah, we live in a world where, in fact, you know, the idea of reforming the university, uh, like in Wisconsin, it's getting rid of tenure, making it easier to fire people, the flexible workforce, all those things we know. And again, you know, uh, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about things that um, everybody who's listening to this podcast already agrees about. And that, you know, even people who are the most commit, most hostile to my version of these left arguments, even they are committed to that. So the only point I would want to make that's more distinctive of the line of argument that I'm making, right, about your anti-essentialist summer tour, right, is that <laughs> those things, like those work practices, just have nothing to do with the question of race or, or gender or sex. No, nobody, black people, white people, anybody should be allowed to be fired in that way. Um, and those things are crucial. And if you're not fighting for that, so all the people who are just like angry and want this guy fired. I totally understand why anybody's angry. I'd be angry too. I totally understand why you sort of think, I would love to see him suffer, therefore lose his job. And I don't give a flying fuck personally what happens to the guy. But if you're interested in defending a social justice issue, which matters to anybody who manages to get a job, not having people fired because they mouthed off and said things that their colleagues and the boss didn't like, or at least not having them fire without some set of procedures, which you have to go through, which make it hard to fire someone and make it so it's only worthwhile if they did something really bad and you can sort of prove it to like a group of your peers. That's much more important issue from the standpoint of workers' rights than, you know, getting the guy fired because he said things that were um, both wrong and hurtful, which he did. He said things that were both wrong and hurtful. You know, I, I mentioned this to a friend a couple of days ago when it came out that he was uh, summarily fired for those statements. I said, you know, back in the day, in the heyday of the, the labor movement, you know, they would have uh, gone on strike to protect his right to, to the job. But then the next day, they would have lured him into a dark alley and, and kicked his ass. Totally, totally. That's ex- but Number two is just as right as number one. Yeah, if you don't like him, kick his ass. That's fine. He's a jerk. Yeah, you know, whatever. Absolutely. Don't don't invite him over to your homes, you know, give him a black eye to think Needless about it a say, little bit. The last thing, you know, you can get every executive at, at, at a, in Silicon Valley to say that they're ashamed of their sexism and they're trying to overcome it. And some of them will be sincere and many of them will not be, but they all understand it's the right thing to do. You can't get a single fucking one of them to say, no, I, well, things would be better for us if my if my, if my labor force were unionized. <laughs> you know, then it's not really an issue coming up there. It's not like a, they don't have to be hypocritical about that. So you know you're losing when people don't have to at least pay lip service 
to what your ideal is. And, and that's true, right? Even other workers in Silicon Valley, yeah, yeah. who in fact regard themselves correctly as fairly privileged and think that unions would, um, would you know, in a way, the most best thing to come out of this would be if people at, at, um, at Google organized but, and said, you know, Fred got, whatever his name is, he got fired because he mouthed off. I would never say those things. I think those things are wrong. But I'm afraid of getting fired like that. Maybe we should have a union that would stop that. So that would actually obviously be, that would be turning this thing into an opportunity. But, you know, you can flat out guarantee that that will not happen at Google. Well, I've had many shows in the past that were very unpopular uh, (laughs) with the left about talking around the way that say these sort of left-wing victories of getting people like this fired are really pirate victories in the end because they they will ultimately be in, uh, you know, used uh, to to fire folks who were arguing for unions, and, Actually, and like we yeah. saw at the Nissan plant uh, down south, the folks who were organizing uh, for that election were intimidated and harassed. I mean, so who? What about their speech on the job? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, everybody, you know, I mean, the point about freedom of speech should be everybody should be free to say more or less any damn thing. I've taken enough of your time today. You've been very generous. Uh, this is going to be on the table. These issues of identity and, and discourse are going to be on the table in real ways here in the coming years. Uh, Kamala Harris uh, has recently bent the knee to the power brokers inside the Democratic Party uh, in the past week or two. Uh, thus, I guess, maybe perhaps assuring her position as one of the leading candidates in the uh, 2020 Democratic primary, of course. So she seems to be kind of like the neoliberal centrists uh, guy, so to speak. Well, wait a, a minute, gal, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't, will, don't, don't, uh, don't for, sell Cory Booker, Cory Booker short. Hey, he's still yeah. in that competition. He, he's he's going to do what, he's going to kiss whosoever's ass uh, he has to kiss. I agree. He'll, he'll go, he'll go low, as low as he needs to go. Uh, and he has all the identitarian bona fides as well. I mean, let's not forget that. He, he worked uh, in conjunction with the school privatizers oh, who, who are, are, are uh, woke uh, incorporated, you know. With yeah, the yeah, no. I mean, I, you know, the, and, the only thing that's wrong is that I don't understand why Doreen McKesson hasn't declared his candidacy yet. Uh, he's such a dork. I mean, that's really the problem. I think people have finally caught on to that. He's just not good on a microphone in front of people. Well, I don't know. I mean, but getting that 3% of the vote in Baltimore is a good practice for moving on. But the point about it is, yeah, you're right. All those issues. But, you know, one thing you can say is that, so if you're on the left worrying about who's going to run for the presidency in the, for the Democratic Party is not maybe the first thing you should be doing. Organizing a union at your workplace is the first thing you should be doing. Then figuring out once you got that union, who that union should endorse and where its money should go. That's the second thing you should be doing. Let's get to the piece that I was. You're on. You're not on Twitter uh, very clearly. No, I you know. Uh, <laughs> I understood years ago the minute Twitter became a thing. Actually, somebody wrote a piece. I think in the Times, very early on in Twitter, saying with a list of four people that she thought should be on Twitter. And one of them was me, and I was a little bit flattered, but I also thought deep in my heart, no, no that would no, not be good. The no. protections of tenure are not strong enough. <laughs> and I actually like my job. I'm kind of committed to having it. I can't. I like you having your job too, and yeah, so do your it. fans uh, who are my listeners. And so I, I, I co-sign that that uh, sentiment. So since you're not on Twitter, you may be unaware of this. So the reason why I, br- I, I like I like the direction you took that in, in terms of like who cares what the Democratic Party centrists are doing? Let them do their thing. We need to fight uh, the material fight at the point of production. That's really essential. Uh, the DSA has moved uh, str- the ball to continue the sports metaphor strong, hard in that direction as well of moving away from just pure 
pure electoralism. Uh, so this is all; these are all good uh, directions. But but what what I'm talking about is a lot of dead pundits out there, uh, the centrist dead pundits, the Joy Reeds, and the and the, those types of folks who are now using Kamala Harris's or or Booker's potential race in the primary as a way, uh, as a cudgel to fight the left, to say that they, oh, see, you uh, class reductionists, you don't care about race, you don't care about gender. If you did, you would get behind Kamala Harris. And the only reason you don't like her is because she's a woman, you're threatened by her, and because she's black, because you're obviously racist, because universal social programs, as we know, uh, you know, don't help black people, which is just bizarre. Despite the universal part. Fucking bizarre, but that's the rhetoric. They, right? they so don't help seeing, black people if they're not deployed universally. That's for sure true. So we're seeing this identity versus inequality phony argument that you address in your Trouble with Diversity book and elsewhere uh, crop up again. So, so it seems like we're going to see an intensification of this argument on the liberal and liberal left uh, over the coming four years. Uh, what do you make of that? Can you give us any advice going forward in terms of how to face down those types of attacks? Well, you know, I do think that um, – this is why the DSA is important. I think that people who are in the Democratic Party should actually, if you're one of the people who listens to this and you're in the Democratic Party, you should not be in the Democratic Party. You should be in the DSA. You should actually try to make socialism into a real thing. It's a membership party. You should belong to it. Uh, I think what's happened in Britain in the last six months, actually the last two years with Corbyn, has suggested the attractiveness of a membership party and the kind of things you can do with that. So I would say, first of all, you know, but if you're committed to staying in the Democratic Party, yeah, I mean, you make the arguments that you all know and that we're already making, which is that actual equality requires not uh, race-based equality, that what Adolf and Merlin call disparitarianism is not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is uh, commodification of all those goods in the first place. But the thing I would say is that for everybody in this, you know, you make the argument within the party but then when push comes to shove, when you're running against whatever Republican comes up against it, you're going to vote for you know, the least bad candidate. The important thing is to fight for the principles, fight for the best candidate, but then don't like turn it around and say, fuck it, I'm going to vote, for, uh, I'm going to vote f- in effect for Trump. Um, that makes no sense. Um, at least it makes no sense to me. Um, and, and one of the reasons it makes no sense is because, you know, if Trump manages – if Forget Trump. If the Republicans put through something like the end or the the effective de facto end of Medicaid that was involved in that plan, um, the millions and millions of people whose lives would be destroyed by the end of Medicaid, that's a real problem. So Obamacare, I was never a fan of Obamacare. I bought the left critique of Obamacare right from the start. I mean, what if, Obama is a pure neoliberal. He's someone whose idea of a solution is to prop up markets. I mean, one of the distinctive things about neoliberalism is that instead of seeing a kind of laissez-faire opposition between business and the state, neoliberalism thinks that the job of the state is to make markets function more efficiently. So that, in fact, that markets left to their own devices will not function efficiently. So, for example, healthcare markets left to their own devices will not function efficiently because people who are healthy and young will not buy insurance. So the state has to intervene to make the market work. That's a classic thing. It starts with antitrust law, right? Uh, long before uh, neoliberalism in the 1880s and 1890s. So all of us understand what's wrong with that if you're a socialist. All of us understand that that is not close to a first best solution um, and that 
all of our time spent doing everything we do until we get to the ballot box should be spent fighting that from the left. But I just go back to what I said before. You know, I want to live in a world where I am fighting it from the left, um, not in a world where I'm defending it against the right. Um, so to me, it's a kind of double track. On the one hand, we should be absolutely pushing not extreme views, but the actual views we hold, the views in which identitarianism is, in the end, not either relevant or useful, that anti-discrimination is essential, but it cannot be the center of a social justice program, and it certainly cannot be the center of socialism, and that what we're interested in basically is decommodification and redistribution. And we should push that every step of the way till you actually walk in and have to choose between Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Jill Stein, and Gary Johnson. And then, again, to your, to your listeners, if you made the wrong choice there, you know, God help you. <laughs> God help us all, you know. I don't actually believe that it was leftists voting for Stein or Johnson or not voting at all that destroyed Clinton. Clinton was doing it by herself. All right, so we're going to wrap this up. It's been a nice long interview. You've been very generous with our time. We've talked about some high literary criticism, and uh, I hope we didn't lose anybody. We talked about deconstructionism, and we talked about a lot of nitty-gritty political stuff, good socialist politics. So final question, topic. A friend of the show, a friend of mine, Amy, from Down Under in Australia, pointed out to me that you, sir— are the only guest on the Dead Pundit Society thus far to have a spread in Hustler magazine. Oh my God, Amy, I'm in love. <laughs> Amy brought it to my attention that you were in Hustler magazine. I mean, the first question is, that how does Amy know? I Maybe she's a fan. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's a fan of you and the magazine. I don't know. So in other uh, words, she- <laughs> so the perfect woman is what you're saying. She um, is indeed the perfect woman. Uh, but but no. She- so I have to reassess. I have to reassess my not visiting Australia thing. It's that's true. Right, I have a right. horror of the snakes. But just to shake Amy's hand might be worth the trip. It would be. So she saw, she actually caught this on a YouTube of a lecture that you gave some years ago. That's probably the only time I've ever mentioned it in public. I don't yeah. think it's on my CV. I'm not sure. Yeah, she, she scoured the uh, onlines to find this one. So, yeah, so, so it's tell true. us about your spread and hustler. Before hey, people, hey, uh, and... and and with a big and with a big photograph, when the guys when the guys started saying to me, "So we want we need a picture of you," and they could experience the horror emanating from me, and as one of them said right away, "Don't worry, professor, we want you to keep your clothes on." Those are those are seven or eight of the most comforting words I've ever heard in my entire life. That's right up there with <laughs> it's not malignant, you know. Jesus Christ, how much <laughs> are these people paying me for this? Nothing. You know? <laughs> they didn't pay me anything. Although I became kind of friendly with those guys. And uh, they did offer me, uh, when Norman Mailer died, um, they asked me to write a piece about Mailer for Hustler. And I was sorely tempted, um, but I knew I'd have to do a bunch of work to it. So I, um, they pay pretty well, but I just thought, well, you know, I'm gonna, it was kind of a love test. And also I needed to convince myself that the sort of three weeks I have to spend rereading Norman Mailer text would be worth it. So I asked them to pay me, in effect, 50 cents more per word than they had offered. And I, my agent did this negotiation for me. The negotiation consisted of then saying no. And then me saying to my agent, well, ask him again, you know, those guys like me and I like them. And they once again said no. I said, well, try one more time. I think I lowered it, gave them like something in between. And then they said something which has always stuck with me. They said, you know what? If Norman Mailer comes back from the dead, we'll pay him that amount of money to write this piece. 
but for the professor, it's what our rate is. <laughs> so I didn't write it. Um, well, but you know, well they, I mean, the, the truth of it is that it was, I don't think it still is, but for many years, it was run by and edited by guys who had a kind of, you know, basically hustler style populism. Probably a lot of those guys ended up voting for Trump. They were very interested in class issues. They had a kind of crude take on them, but they were totally interested in class politics. They associated the kind of vulgarity. They mistakenly associated the kind of like crudeness of hustler with a kind of class commitment. In other words, they did a kind of cultural version of, well, you know, white guys, white working guys like to see pictures uh, whatever you see pictures of in Hustler, and those are guys who are being fucked by the system, and those are our audience. What are those pictures? I've never seen a Hustler magazine. So before. I haven't I seen Hustler know. in a while, because uh, <laughs> you know there's an internet now. Why anybody needs Hustler? I don't. I'm uh, amazed right. they still exist. But but there's a very attractive woman on the cover of the one I was in. Um, but she and then inside people have less clothes than they have on the cover. I, however. Right. I'm fully dressed at all times in my appearance in Hustler. <laughs> and, any, oh, and I'm also shot in a kind of come-hither soft focus. Oh, so that, oh hey, hey. So and it's a big picture, although it has some words in front of it. I so, may have yeah. to find that picture and dig it up somehow. If you can and, find it uh, online, um, I actually, I don't know if there's a thing you can do to make it go away, but um, you can talk to me after all this is over and I will pay you some large amount of money to make it go away. <laughs> I may, I may, I may uh, resuscitate it, rehabilitate it. We'll see. But hey, it's been an honor to have you on the show, uh, just as yourself, but but even more so as uh, someone who has had a hustler spread. Yeah, I bet you that I am the only uh, person you've interviewed in this so. podcast who has a hustler cover. I think so. We we support sex workers in every way, shape, or form. <laughs> Uh, but but I've never had I've never had uh, one on the show. Although you weren't paid for it, so no. But you know, sex worker, I can uh, totally live with that. If only, if only. We can't add that to your intersecting uh, <laughs> uh, oppressions. Unfortunately, sex worker is not one of your intersect right, uh, but intersectional they should be unionized. oppressions. They should be unionized. Absolutely. So, Walter, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've really appreciated it. Uh, I'd like to have you back sometime, you know, uh, in the future to talk talk through some of these things. I know my audience uh, likes you a lot, and uh, and I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Dave. I enjoyed it. <laughs> And that concludes episode four of the Anti-Essentialism series. I really enjoyed that discussion with Walter. I hope you did too, for folks who are hearing it for the very first time. Uh, Walter, we went, into, man, we went into the weeds on some of his more academic uh, writings, and I hope that was really useful to frame his discussion about the diversity industrial complex, if you will. Uh, the book that we talked about that is most accessible is called The Trouble with Diversity, it's a relatively short book, it's super cheap. It's like 10 or 11 bucks on Amazon, I believe, if you want to support that corporate juggernaut. Um, so pick it up. It's well worth a read. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a seemingly controversial argument, but when you really break it down, as he, as he made very clear in the interview, you know, he's not a contrarian. He's just looking at the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground tend toward this idea that the anti-racist discourse itself has within it very problematic aspects that lean towards woke neoliberal centrism. He has a new piece out on nonsite.org that has come out since we aired that interview the first time around. I'm going to link to that on the show notes. It's called The Political Economy of Anti-Racism. 
and the, the piece is really great from top to bottom, but I want to draw your attention to the second half of that essay. It is the most succinct analysis and takedown of this woke neoliberal identitarianism that I've ever seen in writing. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's really great, but this is really succinct. It's short. It's clear. It's to the point. No jargon. He makes his case in very clear English using plain examples that everybody should be able to recognize. So check out that piece. It's the political economy of anti-racism on nonsite.org. I'll link to it in the show notes. The anti-essentialism series rolls on. We're going to be airing a new episode tomorrow. So look forward to that. I hope that what we're doing here is becoming far more apparent. Uh, I really liked Walter's corrective there. He said, no, 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 we're not contrarians. We're looking at the way that these politics and these discourses and these strategies are working on the ground and we're being honest about it. And it's important for a socialist politics that can actually make a systemic difference in the world, as I mentioned in the opening to the show. So enough for me. I've got the good news is uh, season two is going to feature a co-host. Her name's Amy, if you didn't know already. She's great. The best part about that is you're not going to have to listen to me doing these monologues anymore. <laughs> and if you can believe it, I hate doing these monologues probably more than you hate listening to them. So everybody get excited for season two. There's a lot of good Dead Pundit Society coming your way. Till tomorrow, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...